should beg the question, how do such good things come to so many people through just one person? How does one man have such remarkable effect on so many? And that's the question I think Paul's trying to answer in this next text that we're going to read today. It's Romans 5, 12 to 21. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, please pray with me. Good Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would show us Jesus and make, us, make him clearer to us in his beauty and in his love, and that you would press the reality of the gospel into our hearts and lives, we pray. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, a friend of mine who does the same job I do at a different university uh, discovered this illustration that fits in perfectly with this text, and I, I'm going to actually assume he probably used it for this very text when he preached it. So I'm going to give all credit to this for Sean Slate. Sean, love you very much. Uh, he was watching uh, the Planet Earth series, which you may or may not have seen. I've heard it's amazing. I haven't seen it. Uh, but in the midst of that, there's a description of a particular fungus in an ant, and uh, it's actually become the basis for a new zombie video game. I don't play video games, and I don't care about zombies, even ones that wear bandanas and walk the halls of the cathedral like they did 10 minutes ago. Just, I don't care. But this is very interesting. This, this new video game I was reading about, uh, it's, they're saying it's the first zombie film or video game that actually makes a reasonable scientific argument for how a zombie metamorphosis could occur, how it could actually happen. And it's based on this parasite that uh, in the jungles of South America, there's a uh, parasitic relationship between this ant and a fungus called the cordyceps. And perhaps some of you know it. You can say it more accurately than me. Uh, what happens is that this parasitic fungus, the cordyceps, it really is like something out of a sci-fi horror film. Spores of this fungus rain down, and they land on an ant. And then slowly over time, they... Uh, break through the exoskeleton and work its way into the body of the ant. And there it begins, as it infects the ant, to gain control of its body and its brain. As it exerts its control, it actually releases some kind of chemical that tells the ant to climb high into the tree. 
So it climbs high into a tree, latches itself on the bottom of a leaf in a death grip, and it dies. At that time, the fungus takes complete control over the body, digests the insides, continues to grow until something like a mushroom bursts out of the ant's head. It'll grow for three weeks to a month, and then it will release thousands and thousands of spores onto the ant community, possibly wiping out an entire colony of ants. Isn't that horrifying and amazing at the same time? It's crazy. And you're thinking, like, yeah, whoever uh, designed that video game, he's on something. Um, and, And what we're finding in our text here today is something like this. That Adam's sinful choice at the headwaters of humanity was like a fungal spore set free, high above us, that rained down and worked its way into all of humanity and led to destruction and death. And this points to our need for a new man, the man Jesus. What we're talking about are two of the most influential men in history today. And uh, it's highly contentious whether one of them even existed, that being Adam. Even the most skeptical, cynical person would agree that Jesus existed. They may disagree with what kind of man he was and whether the legendary counts are true or not. But regarding Adam, there may be different uh, opinions. Uh, If you want to talk about that in more detail, I'd love to talk to you about the history of Adam and what I think about it. But the the Bible assumes and states clearly that Adam is one of the two most influential men in history. Not the most famous. You know, you could trace back your own family tree. Anyone ever done a genogram? A genogram is like a family tree with all the dirty secrets where you, like, actually dig into the family history and you're like, my great-great-grandpa was a drunk. And he slept with who? Like, I did this in, in, in class, and every time I talk to someone about it, they're like, well, I'll tell you this, but you've got to promise not to tell anyone. And what you learn is, yeah, yeah, so-and-so was, like, the famous person in the family, but that's the guy that changed the whole family. Like, that's the guy that I can think, thank you, God, that someone went to college and someone didn't become a drunk. And, and that's what's going on here. We have two men, maybe not the most famous, but two most influential men in history in the person of Adam and the person of Jesus. And what we find in our text is the description of two reigns, the reign of sin in the reign of grace. And lastly, we'll talk about what this has to do with relating to God. So, first, the reign of sin. And the reign of sin is it's introduced to us in the very first verse, verse 12. Sin came into the world. We have this understanding that sin is something like a parasite. That uh, you know, the world is not the way it is today because God created it this way. I was with my son all week last week, and being a five-year-old, he is by nature violent, and it takes no encouragement from me or media. Like, he just gets, this is who he is. And he says outlandish things, like, I'm going to blow up a building. And I'm like, you don't do that. Why not? Because it's evil. Why? What happens to all the people? And then he asks, do people blow up buildings? Yes, Caleb, they do. Why? And I'm like, do you want the big answer? <laughs> like, uh, because the world's broken. And, you know, what, what our text is telling us is the world wasn't always this way. That it's full of brokenness and pain and suffering now. But God didn't create it this way. Something happened. A parasite came in. Sin. Something from the outside. And it came in, as verse 12 tells us, through one man. That sin wasn't part of the original goodness, the way God created things. But it found a ready host in the person of Adam. And Adam gladly participated in, in what sin offered him. Uh, and, and the text makes it clear as we read through verse 14, Adam transgressed. In verses 15 through 18, the word trespass 
It's used five times. And verse 19 describes his disobedience. So sin wasn't just like some strange medical condition that happened to him. He lost control. He didn't know what he was doing. It's clear that sin was at work, but he participated willingly in what happened. That uh, as God made it clear that obedience to him and a loving relationship meant doing and not doing certain things, Adam knew what he was doing and willfully rejected God's will. And in so doing, willfully rejected God. If you go back and read those accounts of Genesis 2 and 3, what you see is Adam literally saying to God, although, never mind, literally, we should just scrap that word from the English language now. We don't even know what it means anymore. But Adam basically, uh, in, in God's face, saying, I, I don't need you, and I don't need your good things. I'm going to do what I want. I'll be my own God. I'll be my own man, and I'll have what I want. And as a result of that, the text tells us we've inherited that. Uh, Again, verse 12, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. What we we have is uh, sin being this pervasive reality, this, this aspect of life that we all know that none of us are the way we're supposed to be. I think we'd all admit that. Like, we're not the people we want to be. You may have a different explanation for why that is. Scripture's explanation is God created us beautiful and right, right really relating to him and to others and to the world. And sin came in, and now we're, we're born into it, and it affects us from the womb, and it works away in us as a condition. And we gladly usually participate with it. And it spreads all through us. That all sin, we inherit this, and that every part of us and every one of us suffer from this condition. Uh, you need to know something very important. The Avett Brothers have just released a new album. You should buy it, because they're awesome. Um, they really are. And they're also coming in September. No, March. They're coming in March. You should try to go to that concert. Anyway, uh, they also uh, tell us all kinds of wonderful things about human nature. And in their song, And It Spread, we have a pretty good description of the nature of evil in humanity, there was light in the room, then you left and it was through. Then the frost started in my toes and fingertips, and it spread into my heart. Then, for I don't know how long, I settled into doing wrong. And as the winds filled the sail, came the thought to hurt myself. And it spread into my home, and it spread, and it spread into my soul. Yeah, it, it, uh, very aptly and beautifully, but painfully describing the nature of evil as it seeps in, settles in, affects others. You heard that, right? Into my home, the relationships around us, into the very depth of who we are. This is the nature of sin as as the Bible describes it. It affects us. It affects everyone. It affects the way we relate with one another. So what's true of Adam becomes true of us. We now, too, are people who, by nature... Know what God wants, know what God requires, and says, I'm going to do it my own way. You're free, God, to support me in my efforts, if you like. I'd like you to. I'll pray that you will, but I'm going to do what I want. I I like my own little kingdom, please. And we, like Adam, suffer the consequences. There's a penalty. There's actually a number of penalties described here. Verse 16 talks about judgment and condemnation. Verse 17 makes it clear what the ultimate penalty is, death reigned. And after, in the initial account, after Adam broke God's law and 
Then Adam and Eve, you see the corruption working out in their relationship. All of a sudden, they go from this beautiful relationship to this squabbling old married couple blaming each other. What happens in chapter 5 is the reign of death. Just go read it. It's like walking through a cemetery. And he died, and he died, and he died. And, you know, that's, that's the nature of the world we live in. The world is full of cemeteries. I'm surrounded by them where I live. I really am. I actually sort of like it. But at the same time, it's a, memori- it's, it's a reminder that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And if you have a close loved one die, especially a young one, part of you usually rightly says it's not supposed to be this way. And that instinct is right. It's not supposed to be this way. Death, like sin, doesn't belong. It's not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way God created us. Well, uh, we have to come to grips with the reality of the reign of sin. We can deny it, say it's not real, uh, have other alternative explanations for evil. Um, you, can, you can simply rail against it and say it's not true. I have my individual rights. I'm going to do what I say. I'm not controlled by anything, including some crazy sin nature. I didn't choose this. Uh, you're saying I was born into this. I didn't choose it. Therefore, it can't be true. Um, I hate to disappoint you, but lots and lots of the things that are really important to who you are are things you didn't choose. All right? How many of you chose your gender when you were born? How many of you chose your parents? How many of you chose to be born in the 20th century? How many of you chose to be born in the country where you were born? I mean, that constitutes, how many of you chose your genes? Right? I mean, think about how much all those things factor in to who you are. You didn't choose any of it. I'm not being fatalistic when I say that. I think we still have choices we make and consequences from those choices. But you can be born into all kinds of things you didn't choose. And I'm simply telling you, sin is one of them. In the world and in your life. You didn't choose it. That's the way it is. For the most part, though, we're fine with it because we like it. We participate in it gladly. We have the illusion that we're free to do whatever we want, and so we sin. And it doesn't bother us that much. The reality is, you know, if this is a political race, sin, year after year, runs on a platform of freedom. You can do whatever you want. Year after year, it delivers death. But we still elect them to office every year. But to escape this kingdom, we need another king. We need a new man. We need a different reign. And we have that in the person of Jesus who offers us the reign of grace. Uh, we, we see throughout this whole text Adam and, and Jesus being contrasted, compared. Uh, we see it in verse 14. You read, uh, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning who was not like who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. You know this one who was to come was promised from Genesis 3 right after Adam's sin. God promised, I'm going to send another son. Adam I'm going to send one of your sons and he's going to fix this mess. He's going to he's going to he's going to undo the wrong that you've done. In other words, you know this is a this is a savior story. This is a Return of the Jedi story. This is a Aragorn Strider story. This is an outsider coming in to his rightful own, even though the rightful own's all messed up, coming in sort of, he's promised, but in disguise, to set things right. We have in Jesus a new Adam, 
who comes in from the outside to make things right. And, and the way he does it is by his obedience. Verse 19, by one man's obedience. His obedience is perfect. It's lifelong. Adam didn't take long to fail. The Bible tells us all his life long, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. And I've said before that uh, many of us, who, who we believe what's right and wrong, and we know what's right and wrong, and we suffer to resist temptation. And I've said it before, and I, and I sincerely believe it, that no one suffered temptation like Jesus. Because the Bible says he was tempted like all of us are, but he didn't fail, he didn't sin. He, he suffered more than we did because when temptation comes for us, we're like, no, no, no. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> give it to me. <laughs> I love this. We give in so easily, right? Whereas Jesus had to say no all the way to the end, every time. Sometimes it's probably easy. Sometimes I'm sure it stayed with him. Minute after minute, hour after hour. Making its promises, comfort, peace, whatever the case might be. And he kept saying no. He was obedient to the end. And also verse 18 tells us part of his obedience was one act of righteousness, one particular act. And that's the act of the cross. He didn't have to go. But he chose to embrace the death in order to make things right. And what we find happening as a result of that is a righteousness that becomes ours. It's what one theologian is called an alien righteousness, which sounds crazy. Like we're talking about zombies and aliens and crazy parasitic fungi. Um, but what it means by this is it's a righteousness that comes from outside of us. Most of us think about being righteous or right. We're thinking about things we have to do to be right with God. And what this is is someone comes from outside and performs perfectly and grant you that righteousness. That's an alien righteousness. Something from outside of you. And that's what we have in Jesus. That Jesus' obedience, verse 18, leads to justification. By it, verse 19, many are made righteous. In other words, because of what Jesus has done, God declares guilty people righteous. He acquits people. In other words, the reign of grace is one that's full of sweet mercy. It's full of grace. It's full of righteousness you didn't earn that Jesus did by his perfect obedience. And, and what we have is really amazing. I mean, you, you, you probably read through this text and you thought, man, what a confusing mess. Like, it's, you got like Adam and Jesus and then all this theological comparisons and stuff. And I think it's because Paul's really doing some difficult theology here. But like in the middle section, you may not notice it, but he's like effusive. I think if he could have broke out in poetry, he would have. Maybe he sung it. Because in verses 15 through 17, he talks about the abounding nature of God's grace. Much more. He says it twice. Much more. Much more. He's comparing Jesus to Adam and to Adam's, the effects of Jesus' work to Adam's work. And he just keeps coming up with superlatives. Much more. Much more. Abound. Abundance. The free gift followed many trespasses and it brought justification. Uh, I was reading... Uh, I was actually looking for something like this. I was looking for superlatives and how we use superlatives because we used to say stuff like awesome, that's awesome all the time. And really we're saying that often to describe like completely banal everyday things, right? Like, that's awesome. Like, really? Do it every day. Like, so what word do you use when something really is awesome? That's like really awesome. Really, really awesome? Like, 
Uh, we're out of descriptors to describe really amazing things. And this author named Arthur, it's not really fair, uh, <laughs> Arthur Plotnick has uh, written, this is sort of the description of the book, sadly in this age of awesome, our words and phrases of acclaim are exhausted and they're all but impotent. So he wrote a book called, get this, Better Than Great, a plenitudinous compendium of, wop- of whopping, no, excuse me, walloppingly fresh superlatives. Got to try that one again. Better than great, a plenitudinous compendium of walloppingly fresh superlatives. Like those are all real words. I- I'm giving you this because what Paul does in the midst of this effusive section about what Jesus has done and how his work is so great and the reign of grace is so magnificent is he actually does something like this. Only he goes a step further. He actually makes a word up. He like creates a word. He's like, he said much more twice, and he's like, he's a, he's, a, he's a bright guy. You may disagree with him, but he's a bright guy. Um, and uh, I've used abundance, and I've used abounding. Uh, I'll use free gift five times, which he does. Uh, it's not enough. So he makes up a word in verse 20. Verse 20 reads, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That word, grace abounded all the more, actually is something like superabounded. Like he completely made it up. No one's ever used that word in Greek before or since. He just completely made it up. Because there was nothing else to describe how magnificent God's grace was. He had to create a new superlative for it. This is so rich, so magnificent, so beautiful. I'm out of words. Actually, we're all, the whole world is out of a word to describe this. I'm going to make one up. Super abounded. One theologian's written, what this means is that as God and his work is superior to man, it looks like Adam created the ultimate wreck of all things and God's able to overcome it. That grace is greater than sin and that life is greater than death. And we see that lastly in the result of the reign of grace. We would expect life. We expect life. And that's what we have. The, the promise of eternal life in verse 21. But it comes with a little, a little, little curveball in verse 17. We're told that those that trust in Jesus will reign in life. It's not just that if you trust in Jesus that you'll have life. That you'll go through death and come out the other side. It's that when you come out the other side, you actually find yourself reigning. Like, you're one of the kings. You're, you're in the kingdom, and you're not like a serf. You're one of the kings and queens. You're part of the royal family, reigning in life. So, uh, the, the question now is what to do. We've got these two kingdoms, these two reigns, the reign of sin, the reign of grace. And what, what would be natural for some people to think is, I've got to do something. And uh, I've got to make myself a new man. I've got to make myself fit into this new kingdom. And that's why Paul here twice says, hey, let's talk about the law for a second. He does it in two places, in verse uh, 13, I think, and also in verse 20. And each, each time he says, uh, you, you don't really want to go there yet. And in, in the end, in, verse, in chapter 7, he'll, he'll just deal with this at length. But what he's saying right now is, uh, you're going to try and maybe fix this by the law, and it, and it doesn't work. If you think that you can somehow... Get yourself, by your performance, by being a good person, to go from the kingdom of sin into the kingdom of grace, it's not going to work. Actually, it's going to make things much worse. It's going to make things much worse. If it's a garden, if your life, if your heart's a garden of weeds and you put law in it, 
at best, you're just giving it a trellis to grow on. At worst, you're creating a greenhouse, and it's going to grow even faster. Uh, you don't need the law to fix you. What you need to do instead, in verse 17 says this, is to accept what Jesus has done. To receive, the text says, the abundance of what has been offered through Jesus. See, we, we try... We try two things. I say this pretty often. To do two things all the time. Whatever we want, because we like to sin. Because we want to do what we want to do, like Adam. And at the same time, to justify ourselves before God. I'm a good person. I belong. What we want to do is be in both kingdoms at the same time. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Many, many religions may work that way, but not Christianity. In Christianity, what we find is that we relate to God, not because of our efforts, but through a representative. And lastly, we're going to talk about re- relating to God, and we're going to see that representation is a reality. That's what the text has been saying there. Two men, Adam at the headwaters of humanity, and when he sinned, we sinned. When he sinned, we became sinners. And then there's Jesus promised at the beginning, who came further down, who offered a new way and a new reign and a new kingdom. And if we, if we choose to come under his reign, then he's our representative. Now, uh, naturally, we don't like this. And by we, I mean like 21st century Americans. Like, we, we are hardwired and programmed against this. I don't want anyone to represent me. I want to stand on my own two feet. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to be my own woman. I don't need anyone to do this for me. I don't need to inherit the condition someone else deserved or earned. I want to do it myself. That's that's sort of who we are. And yet the reality is uh, we live in a world that's just full of this. They were always constantly represented before others. Uh, Sort of a funny example is from the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, Which is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Uh, there's a scene in which the, the escaped fugitives um, are driving through the middle of nowhere, I think in Mississippi or Alabama, and they see a hitchhiker and they pull over and pick him up. His name's Tommy Johnson. He's a great guitar player. And uh, they're like, what are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? Tommy's like, I, I had to be at that crossroads there last night to sell my soul to the devil. <laughs> it, it was a deal. If he sold his soul to the devil, the devil would make him a better guitar player. At which point, uh, Ulysses Everett McGill replies, well, and in a small world, spiritually speaking, Pete and Delmar here have just been baptized and saved. I guess I'm the only one that remains unaffiliated. And uh, he's, he's proud of himself. Actually, if you see the movie, he's proud of himself the whole movie. Uh, he thinks religion's foolish, and certainly at times it is. Um, but he believes he's unaffiliated. And the reality is, no one's unaffiliated. You may be skeptical. You may be cynical, you may be hurt, you may be angry, you may be confused, but you're not unaffiliated. You have a representative, and it's either Adam or it's Jesus. It's just the way it is, at least scripturally speaking. And if you don't agree with me, we can talk about it. But this is the reality in which we live. We have representatives every day that make decisions that affect us. Whatever you may think of Congress and our president at the moment, they're making decisions that will certainly affect you. They simply will. That's just the way it is. Uh, The same is true with your family. Uh, You didn't choose your parents, but the decisions they made 
affect you and will continue to affect you for the rest of your life. You may not like it. Sorry. That's reality. Your kids probably won't like it about you either. It's just the way it is. And this is the way it is, spiritually speaking, that we have two representatives. And we can't be free of that. We can't. There's no third-party candidate. We can't write ourselves in. I'm running for office by myself. Vote for me. Uh, It's not going to work. But you do have a real choice. You can't be free of a representative, but you're free to choose which representative you want to be under. You can choose a new man as your representative. You can choose Jesus. And that's why you should do so. Because the reign of sin, even though it's fun and it gives the illusion of freedom, it's an illusion. It corrupts. It destroys. It's the reign of death. Also, because the reign of grace is beautiful. It's restorative. It's restoring all that's good and right about life that you love. It's full of joy. And that life begins now. And the reality is, this is the way it works for the representatives. What's true of, the of your representative becomes true of you. And if Jesus is your representative, then your obedience is his obedience. And his righteousness is your righteousness. And his life becomes your life. And his eternal life becomes your life. You get those benefits. So when a uh, cordyceps fungus infects an ant and begins to take over its mind and body, other ants in the colony recognize its strange behavior. And it, I assume they probably get together and talk, have some committee meeting like, hey, Joe's acting really strange. Crazy fungus, crazy zombie fungus, that's right. And uh, basically at that point, either one, one ant who's uninfected is appointed or volunteers, I don't know how this works, how the ants make these decisions, and they have to go into the colony, pick up the infected ant, and carry him out of the colony, potentially risking his own infection and possible death. It's amazing, right? It's a, it's a picture of the gospel in the middle of an ant and fungal war. And it really is a picture of what happens here. That God, seeing the mess we've made and participated in, sends his own son, uninfected by the reign of sin, perfect, into the world that's rightly his, and that Jesus gladly comes into the midst of it and bears our infection, sin, and is punished on our behalf in order to make us right. And that's the gospel. And when we choose to embrace him, we get what's his. He takes what's ours, our selfishness, and the penalty it deserves, our death and decay and corruption. And then he gives us what's his, his righteousness, his life. It becomes ours. So the question is, uh, who's going to be a representative? You, you cannot remain unaffiliated. And if you're wondering, I don't really know. I, I don't really know. I, I think I'm a Christian. I trust in Jesus, but I'm not sure. Or some of you are thinking, like, I'm not sure I can believe this at all. But I'd love to talk to you about it. Really would. So let's pray together.